Welcome to No Longer Strangers. Each week, I invite a friend or a stranger that turns into a friend and talk about anything you would around a dinner table. Today's guest is exactly that, a stranger that turned into a friend literally around a dinner table. Imagine this. It's 2010. Herman, a 64-year-old introverted man, just got done with work as a judge and decides to eat his dinner at a restaurant he goes to every Thursday. He's enjoying his alone time while eating his favorite food and reading his favorite book. Then, all of a sudden, this 14-year-old girl who's super extroverted and has no table manners, that's me, barges in and plops herself down in front of his table without even asking and completely ruins his dinner. Talk about a great first impression. (laughs) So yeah, that's how Herman and I first met. Somehow, he still wanted to talk to me after that. So, every Thursday of my freshman year of high school, we would just talk about anything and everything. I called it Thursdays with Herman. But little did I know, he had just lost his wife a couple months prior and was about to retire after 37 years in the justice system, 21 of those being a judge. That's why in this episode, we take you down memory lane of our friendship, with three major stops, talking about people and friendships, grief and loss, and the difference between perfect justice and human justice. Before you listen, I wanted to give a trigger warning because we do talk a little bit about abuse and different types of injustice toward the end. I completely understand if you want to skip some parts or the entire episode. I'll leave a timestamp on when that conversation starts and ends. With that, here is my conversation with my friend Herman. Enjoy. Okay, even though you do know me. (laughs) Yes, I just want the listeners to get to know you. My name is Herman J. Smith Jr. And I'm from Medford, Massachusetts. I practiced law from 1974 on until I became a judge and 1990, and I retired from being a judge in 2011. Um, so I was 21 years as a judge, both as judge of the Boston Housing Court and then justice of the Superior Court of Massachusetts. So that, in short, is my name and where I'm from and what I did professionally. But you're also more than just a judge. You're also a husband, a friend, a son. Yes, I'm, I'm married to... Ruth, who was my second wife, my first wife is Denise, who died of cancer in, in 2010. And uh, Ruth and I met in church uh, at Park Street Church, where we still attend. I was reading your biography, and I didn't realize that you've been attending Park Street for 20 years. That's right. Long time. Wow. I love that commitment to stay at a church through different seasons for 20 years. What can you teach us about the choice of committing to a church for both the good and the ugly? Well, um, actually, I didn't think twice about it. Both uh, Denise, my first wife, and Ruth and I all come from old school, I guess. You join a church and you stay there uh, with the expectation that you'll stay there until some event uh, causes you to change such as um, a change in job or 
in my case, uh, the church begins to um, move away from orthodoxy. Um, so the previous church, I uh, was a Presbyterian church I served in for um, for 30 years. Wow. And, um, and I served as an elder there and a deacon. And what caused uh, us to move on um, was that the church uh, was moving um, well, in my view, to the left of orthodoxy, uh, uh, sexuality, and um, I disagreed with that, and I spoke up about it, and um, found out that I was pretty much a minority, and the uh, found that I was angry all the time at the uh, uh, at the denomination and um, the. Uh, realized that that was not right mm -hmm. I needed to um, move on mm -hmm. and so we did we, we found Park Street Church and after searching through several churches we found Park Street Church and you know we began to attend in 1999 and joined a couple mm -hmm. of years later uh, we view commitment to church as the commitment to serve uh, not to Receive, so we didn't join the church so that they could feed us. Mm -hmm. We're fed, uh, or or to get something from it. It wasn't a quid pro quo. Um, the call was to serve, and so um, I've always, to one degree or another, been in service in the church, whether as a small group leader or as a deacon or as an elder, um, and um, in a variety of other ways, and because you know. I guess that's why we were raised. We we're raised to believe that we're there to serve, serve each other, serve the Lord primarily. And so that sort of seals the commitment. You're there, you know, to give, even though sometimes you have difficulties. Of course, there are always difficulties because we're all human. Mm -hmm. Sorry, as far as I know, there is no perfect church. Yeah. But you know, don't get me wrong about that. But there are churches that strive to be obedient to the call of God mm -hmm. and others that are moving away from that. Um, and, um, you know, I want to be committed to a church that is striving to do his best to, to serve the Lord. Even if we, because we're sinners, we get it wrong. Do you remember Herman when I visited your church? Yes. <laughs> and I remember seeing you up there. I don't remember if it was because you had to do something up there or because you're an elder i was an elder yes and i remember seeing you there because it was the closest thing i could imagine to seeing you in the courtroom as a judge i'm so used to seeing the emotion-filled joyous herman that seeing this other side of you was kind of funny well, i'm glad you never saw me in court you probably would have laughed out loud which would have caused me to have a court officer walk you out of the courtroom. It's called the call. I wouldn't laugh. I think I would try to be serious. Actually, no, I would laugh. And it's only because I see this emotion-filled, joyous Herman outside of the court. And so I imagine you have to put that aside a little bit when you're a judge. Completely. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Herman, what's your side to how we met? Well... I repeated the story many times, but here it goes. Um, the, the backstory is that um, I would regularly have dinner at the restaurant that your mother owns mm -hmm. two or three times a week, pretty much. 
Yes, a regular. Right. No, I was a widower at the time, and I really didn't like to eat at home alone. And also, I love sushi, so Mm -hmm. that worked. And so I was sitting at a table reading my Kindle, which is my habit. I came to read and enjoying the sushi. And uh, through the corner of my eye, I look up and, uh, and I see this person standing in front of my table. And she just stands there and she's looking at me. And um, I look down back to my Kindle to read and I look up again, she's still there. <laughs> and so I recognize who she is because um, you know, Julie, your mother at one point you know, pointed you out to me. Um, and I sighed because my dinner was gonna be ruined. And I looked at you and made eye contact, which I've been trying to avoid. And I said something like, hello. Um, and as soon as I broke the silence, broke the ice, you rushed to my table, sat in a chair um, opposite me and started talking. <laughs> and that's how we met. And I'm wondering, this is a teenager. I don't know how to deal with teenagers. How am I going to relate to this to this person? Um, you know, the, all the people in my life uh, were all adults, and um, and I had no kids, and so um, I knew this was going to be a challenge. But you started chatting, and I thought, oh, you started chatting about enough. Oh, because you just you said something like. Uh, you know, I see you here all the time. I'm here on Thursdays and here you are. And, you know, I thought, you know, I would just say hello. And then you change the subject without any introduction or transition. You just abruptly <laughs> change the subject. And said, you know, my youth group and I went to on a, on a mission trip down to Philadelphia. And then you started telling me about your trip down to Philadelphia. I think that's when you told me that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you, you said something unique, which actually um, changed my mind about you. Um, you said that you were talking about a woman that your youth group met, who I believe was uh, a drug addict, may have been a prostitute, I'm not sure. Um, and you and your friends befriended her. And you, you described in brief about the, you know, the difficulty of her circumstances. And then you paused and you said, you know, it, it occurred to me that, you know, I, I could make bad decisions too. And I could end up in a bad place just like her, which stunned me because <laughs> what, you were 14? Yeah. And uh, I, I did not expect an observation like, that from a 14 year old and uh, cause it was pretty adult. So I, I think I said to you, well, you're right. But for the grace of God, go I. And uh, that's what quite perceptive of you that, uh, you know, we're all sinners and but for God's grace, we can make real bad choices and end up with a real bad situation. Uh, by the way, I told your mother about that. Really? Told her that, you no. Know, your daughter is really, really perceptive. And she said, oh, she's just a little girl. <laughs> <laughs>
I said, no, she may be that, but she's very perceptive. But, so that's unusual for somebody her age to, to make that observation in such seriousness. So that that's when I, I realized, hmm, all right, she's a teenager, but this is more to this than the meets the eye. Um, and that's how we met. And then we met, uh, I don't know, don't know how many Thursdays after that. A lot of Thursdays. <laughs> talk about whatever was pretty much whatever was on your mind yeah well okay my side of the story is that i do remember seeing you at the restaurant a lot on thursdays and i remember what you wore and the exact table that we started to have our many conversations and i just remember how i was just very curious as to why i saw you every thursday and i hadn't met you yet and so I remember hearing that you're one of my mom's regular customers, and so I guess that's maybe why I kept staring at you. So I credit my lack of table manners and the fact that I was 14, because instead of asking you if I can have a seat in front of you, I no, I just literally plop myself in front of your table without asking, and I realize now, looking back, maybe that wasn't the move, but... How else would we have had a conversation if I literally just pulled a chair in front of you and just asked a bunch of questions? Because normally now I would be polite and ask, can I have a seat in front of you? But no, I literally didn't even ask you and I just pulled a chair. I know. But I'm glad I broke the ice. Yeah, you know, I was still sitting as a judge at the time and I'm used to people showing great respect. <laughs> so you gotta understand that speaking of respect something i've noticed about you herman from early conversations and even now is that you give each person whoever you're talking to whether an adult a waitress someone you just met like me when i was 14 that you just give them your entire attention and you make them feel seen and valued and that you really want to get to know them, which nowadays I, I find very rare, which is really sad. So how did you get to that point of valuing people no matter who they are? That's a good question. My father was like that. He was friendly with everybody. He used to drive my mother crazy because <laughs> he was... He was uh, uh, friendly and gregarious, um, and um, so I don't think he was introverted. I think he was extroverted. Yeah, well, I I don't know um, really. The um, it, it just happens. Man, thinking of remember little soul. Yes, she's literally the episode right before yours. Ah, I remember she you. Brought her over, her family and other family, a couple of the families were celebrating something from your church. Mm -hmm. And you came over with her and somebody else. Who was the other person? Sally's family. With Sally, that's right. Uh, And Saul, I'll never forget (laughs) Saul. She was, you know, sitting in a chair. You were sitting in front of me and she's sitting at an adjacent table in the chair, you know, what she was like in second grade. So was it seven years old? Um, and, uh, so I had asked her about, well, what grade you, what grade are you in and how do you like school? And then she gets 
quite animated and says, well, you know, I really don't like second grade. She was a second grade. I asked, well, why not? Because they, they made me do homework. I like preschool better because I didn't have to do any homework. Do you remember that? I just <laughs> laughed. <laughs> I, I said to her, oh, you did a lot of homework. <laughs> think about that. And I, she was so open and refreshing. I, 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 <laughs> I was delighted by her. She was. She's still like that. She just says how it is, you know. Um. So yeah, she. I'll never forget her, because I. Of course, at this point, she's what, uh, fifteen or something. How old? Yeah, she's fourteen, but she's going into high school. Right. So I wouldn't recognize her if I tripped over her. So <laughs> it's like, but uh, I hope she's still that, you know, open yeah. and engaging person yeah. she was then at age what, yeah. seven, whatever that was um but sometimes it's um getting to know people is well there's joy in it you know people aren't just a face or they, they have a history a story there's something about them and it's always interesting you never know until you ask what was the most interesting interaction or person you've been able to meet? I took a trip to uh, Far Harbor, Maine um, in 2012. And um, I went up uh, off season uh, so that I could enjoy being up in Far Harbor, which I like, but mostly to write. I wanted to just write um, my memoirs of the eight years that Denise had cancer and we walked through that. Um, and I wanted peace and quiet, I didn't want to be disturbed. And uh, I wasted her time on on videos on, the, on, on my computer. Um, and so I did that, I went up there to write. And um, they, one evening after uh, dinner, um, I, well, after I've been writing for a while, I came downstairs to the, the main lobby. There was a huge fireplace. There is a huge fireplace in the main lobby with chairs around it, you know, like a walk, you know, a fireplace that you can burn trees in. Um, and um, there was a couple uh, seated together. Um, there are three uh, sofas uh, lined up like a, a U and around the fireplace. And so I sat opposite them. And uh, I think I brought my Kindles and just sit and read and enjoy the fireplace with a little glass of wine. And um, the, um, they were, um, I overheard their conversation. I don't remember the details. Um, and um, they said something that I could relate to. And so, uh, Uncharacteristically, I, I spoke up and said that uh, that I had an experience like that too, and um, then they, uh, the husband of this couple, uh, lit up and we just started talking. Um, Sharon, he was from um, Portland, Maine, and he came up to Bar Harbor. He and his wife, time to time. We both talked about loss. He had experienced loss as well. I talked about how Christ, uh, my faith was uh, 
the anchor uh, for that time uh, that, you know, life's hard, but God is good. And uh, he shared a little bit about that. Um, and um, and we, we talked about faith and just that was an encouragement. I didn't, I took a chance in being that honest with him about uh, loving the Lord and um, trusting him even when uh, there's uh, you know, darkness in one's life. And uh, so we, we sort of hit it off. And uh, so he gave me his, his phone number, his address, and um, I, um, I exchanged my phone number with him. And about uh, a year later, I get a phone call from a stranger. Um, I had forgotten his name. He introduced himself and made the connection. And we had a long chat. He just was, you know, for some reason thinking about me and thought he'd just call and see how I was doing with, you know, you know, you know my own um, continuing grief with having lost my wife and, and his own issues. And so we chatted um, out of nowhere. Um, and uh, he invited me to come up and visit them, he and his wife. Um, I was not able to do that, but, uh, you know, out of nowhere. Mm, I think that story just goes to show how profound grief and loss and all the emotions in between God can handle that, but also it allows the space for a special bond and a connection to form, even with a stranger. So speaking of grief and loss, it reminds me of one of the most memorable and important conversations that I've had with you when I was, I think I was 14, and I, my friend was going through immense grief with the passing of her mom and I remember that I didn't know what it was like to experience grief first-handedly but I still wanted to uh, sit alongside her in her grief and just to learn as much as possible and how to be a better friend. So what were some lessons you learned during those time of grief and loss? Well I remember that conversation quite vividly um, you came to my table and you expressed that you were sad I mean, right away. You, took, you went right into it. Like I said, the conversation is always driven by you. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just sort of sat there cringing. <laughs> what are you going to ask me now? <laughs> and so, um, you told me you were sad because the mother of a friend of yours from from school uh, died uh, of cancer, if I remember correctly. And uh, your friend was very sad, and and he, he didn't know what to say to her. I think you asked. He said, um, and um, that you were sad, and and you just didn't quite know, um, you know, how to be a friend to your friend, and also how to deal with your own emotions and. And expressed, you know, I never lost somebody that close to me like she lost her mother. Um, and so I think I shared this with you. I certainly shared it with your mother. So as I was listening to you, I was wondering, okay, what do I tell her? Um, what do I what do I say to Grace? And 
I was, I generally did not share much about my own grief with anybody, with adults, let alone with the teenager. Um, and I wondered if, uh, if uh, you would understand what I was going through um, or whether it would be just too heavy for you. And I hesitated. Um, I think I probably asked you another question so that you could keep talking while I was trying to decide what to do. Um, and finally, um, you know, it occurred to me, well, I, she's, she's sincere. She's obviously looking to try to deal with this. Um, and um, I mean, this will just tell the truth. And so I did. And so I, I, I told you that first in general, that grief is very hard. It's hard to lose somebody that you love. Um, it's a, you know, sort of tear in a tapestry of your life. Um, and though God can mend that tear, uh, the scar still remains. And uh, but God is powerful enough and gracious enough to con continue to build a tap tapestry around the, the tear so that the tear blends in and becomes part of the tapestry. Um, and then I got more personal and talked about how hard it was when Denise first died, um, how intense the grief was, um, and how I suggested the thing that was most important for you to do was just to be with your friend, because that's what I found most helpful um, with people, pe friends just being with me. You know, they, they can't take away the pain, they can't take away the loss, um, they can't take away the loneliness, but um, their companionship matters in some way that is intangible, but it's real, it matters. Um, and, um, and so that's, I encourage you just to be willing to be with her and just listen to her and not try to solve a problem, just listen. Um, you know, I shared how intense the grief is. I, I have told you one of the stories of grief that, uh, um, that first somebody told me, a friend of mine, a lawyer friend of mine whose wife died, he and I were chatting after my wife died and, and he started to tear up. Um, <laughs> we were chatting on Cambridge Street in Boston, middle of the day, and he started to tear up when he thought about his wife. And he, he said, Herman, you know, there will be times when you'll, something will trigger the memory of her and you will begin to feel grief. And I might have told you, um, I don't remember, at this point, which story I told you, there's so many. Um, but one is that I was uh, shopping as stop and shop, um, just looking for my, my normal foods, mostly steaks and chicken and meat. And for some reason, I walked down the aisle where there were uh, pre-cut fruit, like watermelon and grapefruit. And um, Denise, always wanted me to buy that for her when she was very sick because she couldn't eat very much. Uh, watermelon in particular would go down easily. And um, so I walked down that aisle and all of a sudden I come upon the shelves with uh, the cut watermelon and grapefruit and so forth and cantaloupe. And it stops me cold and I get a knot in my throat. And I know at that point I'm, I'm going to not cry, but wail. I mean, my lawyer friend called it 
wailing. He said, Herman, you will wail. Um, and so at that point, I, I went to the counter, paid for what I had, got out of the rest, out, out of the uh, stop and shop, got to my car and wailed. Um, it was overwhelming. And um, the, um, that's a sort of grief that you can't put words to. So I, 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 if I, I told you something about that, either that one or some other, just to express you the deep loss that your friend would have, but that the, you know, you just let her cry, but then you know, to, just to be a friend to her. And so, I mean, what I, I told you, your mother was actually looking and she saw that you were quiet and listening. And because I was telling you the story and, you know, you didn't ask any questions. You just, just listened. And, um, the, um, I think she even came over um, to see what was going on. And I explained pretty what was happening. Then afterwards I said, you know, your daughter asked a very, very adult question about loss. And I just shared with her about my loss uh, with uh, my wife, Denise. Um, and uh, <laughs> your mother is so funny. Now she loves you very much. Uh, she said, but she's just a little girl. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> No, she's she's very mature, and she can see it. Yes, sometimes. <laughs> uh, well, you're a teenager, right? And I guess you have your good days and your bad days. Um, but she did appreciate what I had to say about you at that time. So that wasn't that. I remember that conversation vividly. It surprised me um, because it's so heavy. Mm. That's simply not a conversation I ever had with any teen teenager in my life, not even since and not before nor since, it's interesting. Well, I'm very honored and I think just to be able to listen to your story and just your journey of dealing with grief and loss, I think I realized in that moment how special this moment was to be able to um, not even be in your shoes necessarily, but just to listen and just sit alongside you and just feel as much as I could feel in that moment. And then after going through grief with my grandma passing away, I, of course, it's not anything what I imagined, you know, it's far more deep and painful, but, um, so even just like your story about the cut watermelon, it, touched me because there everyone has that like with their grief like for me it was the moment where my grandma has this like specific scent that she has on her and so I got like a whiff of her scent uh -huh. after she passed away yeah well um and that just like yeah yep. I know yeah so it's hard you know but on the other end, you did find love again after grief. Not to say that it puts grief away, but I think the fact that you and Ruth also both individually experienced grief. Yes, we did. Yeah. Um, how how was that journey, or how yeah how was that finding love again? Well, no, that was the Lord's doing. Uh, Ruth and I were attending Parkview Church the whole time, but we weren't really connecting with one another. And though we knew each other, and I knew her husband, uh, Bill, 
um, before he died of cancer. Um, then went to his funeral as a memorial service. But after that, Ruth and I really did not connect. Nor did we talk at all about our mutual losses um, for a couple of years. Now. So he died in 2011, 2010. Um, so it was 2013, um, a pastor asked me to join a prayer group. Um, and um, which he had been asking me all along, but I'd just been pushing him off and finally mm -hmm. yes. And so when I got the invitation that listed all the members and the date of the prayer group, I saw Ruth's name on it. And I said, hmm, that's interesting. And um, so I went to the meeting and um, the first prayer meeting. And um, by the end of it, I realized, you know, Ruth and I suffered the loss of both our, of our spouses. We knew each other. Um, and we've never even talked about it. And so after the meeting, um, it actually wasn't right after the meeting, it was the following Sunday after the meeting um, at the church. Uh, I looked her up and found her in church and said, you know, Ruth, you know, I, I regret that I haven't reached out to you to at least commiserate with uh, our mutual losses and and to be to support one another we both of spouses died of cancer um we you know we know the pain of it um and um and i'm not spending time uh, just even just acknowledging it with you and i thought maybe you know maybe we can go to lunch uh today and, and chat I just well i can't do it today um but you know, let's go to lunch at another time. And so she made a suggestion about that other time. I said, fine. And so we did. And uh, we did talk about our losses and our grief and, um, you know, how the Lord uh, walked with us through the valley of the shadow of death and, and you know, how the grief is still there, but it softens after a while. Um, and I found that I liked her. <laughs> And, uh, and, um, and so after that first lunch, um, we, uh, we were talking, we walked through the parking lot uh, where our, our cars were and I, um, uh, we about ready to part and I said, would you like to do this again? And she, and she said, yes. And so we, we made another arrangement to go to, uh, another restaurant. So we just sort of went back and forth between those two restaurants over the next um, couple, three months and um, got to um, group closer and closer over that time, over lunch, mind you. <laughs> um, and then I guess the big day, you know, the sort of, it ratcheted up when she invited me to go to a formal fun function of, uh, her daughter's school. She uh, she teaches at a charter school and it was a fundraising event. And so she reserved the table and I was with her at the table. And uh, that's sort of when her daughter first found out that her mother had a boyfriend. <laughs> it was sort of really sort of interesting. Yes, because the uh, you know, Ruth and was sort of mum on that with her with her kids. Um, Wow, what a way to tell your daughter about 
your new boyfriend. Yeah, we didn't think of ourselves as boyfriend or girlfriend, but that's sort of how we were viewed uh, at the event. Um, and uh, so it sort of caught Sarah by surprise. And um, so we continue dating and things accelerated pretty much after that. Uh, the, uh, the key was I had, uh, she invited me to a, a concert of bluegrass music. Now, I don't care for bluegrass music. Um, and, uh, but she insisted that we go because um, the musicians were, were black. Uh, bluegrass is typically not black musicians or they're, they're uh, white uh, musicians from bluegrass country from the uh, rural areas of the South. Um, and um, the, um, so I said, fine, I never heard of a black group playing bluegrass. Um, and um, so I joined her and she had, there's another couple with us. And um, so four of us went and, and it was actually quite good. I couldn't quite believe it, it was quite good. Um, <laughs> and um, we had, uh, drove her home and um, before um, we parked the car in front of a house and she raised the issue of, of reparations. Do you know the topic about reparations? Mm -mm. Yeah, this, this an issue has been around for a long time. It's been raised again with uh, Black Lives Matter, recent vintage, but it's an old issue. It's been around for a long time. And the issue is, is that uh, whether or not uh, this culture should pay reparations to the descendants of the, of the American slaves. Um, and um, she had just read an article in the Atlantic where the writer advocated that uh, black writer. And I told her, well, you know, I, I taught race conscious remedies when I was teaching in law school. And uh, I argued against reparations for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, the, uh, it'll, it will not do what people claim it will do, which is cause more problems. But I won't go into that as a long discussion. Um, and um, she was sort of surprised at my objection to it and suppressed a little bit about why she thought it was uh, favorable. And then, um, and then the lawyer in me came out. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I, I, I argue. I, if I have a position, I articulate it and, and generally don't pull my punches. Um, and, uh, you know, winsome, you know, you don't know me like that, but there's a part of me that is not winsome at all. And that is a fighter. And uh, if the issue is strong enough, I'll rise up and fight. And this one was, and I, I just told how uh, reparations is utterly impossible. You know, you know, who gets to pay? How about all the Irish who came over here because uh, of the potato famine in Ireland? Uh, they were poor to begin with. They never owned any slaves in their whole history. Um, and uh, the British who were in Ireland, who conquered it you know, and ran it, they had slaves, but not the Irish. Um, the Irish were their servants. And should, should they pay reparations because they're white? Um, you know, on what basis would you force them to have to pay for, for you know, some wrong that they did not do? Um, and um, 
not everybody, not every white person who came over uh, immigrated from England or France or Germany to the United States ever held slaves. And many um, were, um, you know, came over as indentured servants. An indentured servant is someone who sells his labor in order, in order to pay off a debt. It's life slavery, but it's, it's, um, it's different. You, it's, um, there's a limit to it. You work until the debt's paid off and then you're free and they don't own you. So it's not chattel slavery where the person actually owns you, your person, your body. Uh, you're just selling your labor. And, uh, and a lot of whites came over to um, the colonies as indigenous servants. Uh, and they never owned slaves. Um, they lived as near slaves until they got free. Well, should their descendants pay for this as well? And of course, the answer is no and no and no. Um, and then what about the, uh, the how are you going to identify the blacks who should receive it? Now, I can track my ancestry to slaves because my great aunt, my great uncle were both slaves. Um, and my grandfather received, my great grandfather received uh, 40 acres in a, in a mule in Louisiana, which was part of uh, the remedy that the, uh, the Congress granted to the freed slaves in 1865. Um, and uh, so, and that's in a deed. So I, you know, I can prove that I'm descended from slaves, but many blacks cannot say that. Um, and many blacks uh, came over from the islands and other places where they were not, their descendants were not American uh, sl slaves. Um, and should they receive reparations as well? Um, and it goes on and on. It's, it's, a, it's an implausible and impractical uh, theory. And the point of reparations is to make good those who were wrong. Um, that is, is personal. You make good to the person that you wrong. So typically, uh, you make reparations. If I do something to you, you or your property, um, my reparations, and I'm required to make reparations in the Bible, is to you um, for the loss to you of your property or of your, uh, your family member and so forth. It's quite personal. Um, but it's not to... I don't make reparations to your grandfather or to, you know, to your son or daughter. It's always personal. Um, and so from a Christian point of view, it's, um, it's just simply wrong. Um, and also Ruth is not, you know, she's not a lawyer. She's not, you know, she's tender. She's sweet. She, she really wasn't interested in having a debate. She just wanted to have a conversation. Uh, she just didn't know that she hit a, a real big button. Mm. And so I walked into the door and I didn't want the relationship to be, you know, to fall apart. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I apologized for coming on so strong. And um, I did something that we're not, you know, before that time, you know, we're not touched at all. And But to make up, I offered to hug her and she took that. And so we, the, the relationship didn't crash and 
tank at that point. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen the lawyers and judge side of you. But I think what that story just goes to show is that there are going to be disagreements. And even if you think you're right, it's important to acknowledge how the other person receives it. And especially in your case, how you uh, apologized and sought forgiveness from Ruth. But there is another story where you almost blew it with Ruth after you got engaged. Do you know what story I'm talking about? I'm afraid I might, but go ahead. I think this is right after you guys got engaged. Yes. So something people should know about Herman is that he loves to read, especially C.S. Lewis books. And so he was about to go to a conference, a C.S. Lewis conference, right? A C.S. Lewis conference? Yes, I was. So then I was like, oh, then Ruth is going. That's just how it goes when you're engaged. You just go together. And then Herman's like, no, I'm going by myself. And then I'm like, you're leaving her? <laughs> you're you're leaving her? People know how you said it. You said it like this. You're leaving her? You're <laughs> leaving her? I couldn't believe it getting admonished by this three-year-old. I getting spanked. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Yeah, I remember. I was so shocked because you, you, you just got engaged. So I'm like, she's your fiance. And then what did you do, Herman? Well, you know, you spanked me so hard. I was feeling so guilty. <laughs> 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 that uh, it was a two-week um, conference, Oxford and Cambridge. Um, so it's called the Oxbridge Conference. That happens every once every three years. And uh, I had bought my tickets, you know, like nine months earlier, because you had to do that to get them, um, you know, to, to get a place. And I made reservations from a hotel uh, at the same time because it's also a problem in my flight. So I, I basically paid for the whole thing nine months earlier. Um, and uh, but I was there, and um, the. Uh, I told Ruth we, we would uh, Skype, um, and uh, I told her that I would uh, come back after a week and not go. So I went to the Oxford piece of it, which is the first piece of it, and I didn't go to the Cambridge piece of it, which is the second piece of it. Uh, so it, uh, you know, making all those changes, let's just say that... Um, I paid a price for leaving her. There we go. <laughs> um, so I, I came back and we're fine. Oh, I never even asked you what Ruth's reaction was when you told her my reaction. Oh, she laughed. Oh. <laughs> she, she thought, and we, we thought she thought it was so funny. And you know, and in you know, every July when we think about you know we, um, you know, when I proposed to her, we think about. About that, we regret that we didn't didn't record it. I know, I know, I should, I know. But I had a cell phone on and recorded it, the whole thing, um, and we would just laugh. Ruth would just imitate you, uh, exclaiming, "You left her! You, there wasn't. You're leaving her! You're leaving her!" And, uh, <laughs> um, so that was that, that's that is quite funny, um, and. Uh, no, we were both taken aback because, you know, it came out of nowhere. We were we were stunned. 
Yeah, now looking back, maybe that wasn't the most appropriate reaction to, you know, a conference that you've been wanting to go for so long. So yeah, I could have been a little bit more calm. <laughs> but yeah, I imagine I was like, oh no, they're they need they're they just got engaged. It's gonna be like the honeymoon and love phase. Yeah, we're, we're too old for that. We're teenagers. <laughs> Um, so another conversation, an important conversation that we've had was about your professional job as a lawyer and then later being appointed to a judge. To be honest, I don't think I realized or knew the extent and the gravity of your job when I was younger because I just saw you as my friend Herman. Uh, but can you walk me through the process of your decision in becoming a lawyer and then later being appointed to becoming a judge? I'll, I'll make a brief best I can. Um, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a lawyer, and mostly because my father wanted to be a lawyer, but he had to drop out of uh, college because uh, I was born and he had to get a job. Um, so, you know, the GI Bill wasn't enough to pay for the, you know, for me in school at the same time. And um, so um, the so I wanted to be a, a lawyer. And also I was encouraged by a number of you know, family friends because I was, well, I was pretty smart and talkative and, you know, full of myself. <laughs> <laughs> they, they thought that's what lawyers are like. Um, so nobody in my family is a lawyer, so they really had no no one to. Oh, I didn't know that. No. Um, I mean, I was the first one in my family to go to college. Uh, in my immediate family, uh, one of the first ones. Um, and, um, and definitely the first one to go to law school. Um, so I, I went, I, I was planning on going, you know, to college to go to law school until in my 11th grade, I, served as a counselor at a Billy Graham crusade in Boston, it's 1964. And um, I was um, taking the, I was on a streetcar uh, after school one day and one of my friends at uh, Boston Latin School, not a Christian, but we're friends. And he asked me where I was going that night. I told him I was, I was a counselor for the Grand Crusade. And he says, oh, you, you want to be a minister? <laughs> And, you know, that thought never occurred to me. And, you know, I wondered about that. Um, and I thought more and more about it. And so I thought, well, maybe, maybe that's right. Maybe, maybe that's what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And so as a result of that, uh, I talked to my, my uh, student youth group leader who encouraged me to go in that direction. And so as a result, I decided to go to Gordon College rather than going to one of the Ivy League colleges that my uh, school counselor wanted me to go to. Um, he couldn't believe that I'd want to go to this little Bible college rather than to an Ivy League college. Um, but to Gordon, I went and uh, attended to become a minister. Uh, but I had some doubts about it. And uh, by my sophomore year, I spent time with a minister friend um, just chatting about life and we ended up talking about uh, you know whether I had a call in ministry and he was very good he listened carefully and he asked some questions and 
Um, he kept getting me talking, and after several conversations, he said, "You know, if you if you feel called to the ministry, then it'll be a burning desire in in you, and it will come out in your conversation. It will come out in, in what you do, and you know you're not doing that. Uh, you're not expressing that." The, and, uh, you know, I'm wondering if maybe you want to become a minister because you think the only way to be a good Christian is to be a professional Christian. Um, so when do you think about that? You know, so he didn't, no, he was, he was wise. You know, he did the right thing. He didn't tell me what to do. Uh, he just opened my eyes to issues I hadn't thought about and to um, ask the right questions. And so I prayed about it and ultimately talked to him about it and somebody else as well. And it was clear that my heart really wasn't in that direction. There wasn't a call there. It was a desire just to be a professional Christian. Um, and But my heart was going towards law. And so I changed my courses and ultimately you know, graduated with BU Law School um, and started practice representing poor people um, and Dorchester and Roxbury um, in civil practice, which I, I loved. I like being a trial lawyer. I like taking on these difficult cases. Um, and um, the. Uh, How come? How come you like taking on those difficult cases? I like a challenge. <laughs> um, you know, part of it is, you know, I was looking for justice and, um, you know, I probably would be considered today a social justice warrior. Uh, that was probably, you know, best describe my attitude that uh, as Christian, I, we should seek justice. And so indeed I did, in fact, and I, in all humility, that you know, I've sought justice, you know, for 15 years as a lawyer um, and gutted in many ways, in ways that sadly the social justice people um, in Many of the churches have no clue about. Uh, to them, it's about going on a march. Um, and I can tell you that it takes a lot more than that to, to get justice. And second, what they don't understand is that justice is always imperfect. The best justice I ever got was was imperfect, and always will be. And so I, the Lord, used that to teach me that human justice is limited at the very best. It doesn't mean you don't seek it, but it does mean that you. You're, you're wise about it, um, and you consider what's the more important issue. So I did that uh, practice both uh, uh, you know, for three years in legal aid, and then uh, I started teaching in a clinical legal aid practice at BU Law School, and um, I taught that. Plus, I taught substantive courses as well on constitutional law. And so I taught at BU um, for uh, 10 or 11 years before I became a judge and continued teaching for another five years after that as an adjunct. Um, and becoming a judge, um, I didn't desire to become a judge, but I was uh, some lawyers came to my office one day when I was teaching at BU and, and said if I asked me if I would consider it, I had a lot of cases in the Boston Housing Court at the time. Um, and in fact, I had you know, one of the most famous cases uh, where I settled a, a case 
dealing with a cockroach that crawled on some little girl's ear. Um, and um, I'll tell you about that when I talk about my favorite cases. Um, and that case settled for, well, shall we say six figures. There's, a, there's an agreement uh, to me silent as to the full terms of it. But it was a lot of, I made my client wealthy uh, as a result of this. Um, the, um, and so uh, these, these lawyers asked me if I would, um, you know, consider. And I said, well, okay, I've never done this. How do you do it? And so the lead lawyer said he'll walk me through the process. And so it's a process where you follow an application and go to what's called a, a, a committee of the governor to review all applicants. Um, and it's a committee made up of lawyers and lay people. Um, and they, they vet all the applications and um, the state police uh, do an investigation of background check. Um, and then you get interviewed. And if you pass the interview, your name goes to the governor. So I did, I passed the whole process. My name went to the governor, it was Governor Dukakis at the time. And then three people's names were submitted to the governor. Also, I was one of three. Um, and he interviews each of us, and then he chooses one of us to take that spot. Um, the process is not over. Um, my name is then submitted to a, um, a elected body in Massachusetts um, whose function is, is to um, approve the judicial nominees of the governor and they conduct their own investigation. This is a political uh, body and so their views are political. At this time, there's no doubt about qualifications. The people who aren't qualified didn't get this far. Um, and I um, passed, got through that council, it's called the council, um, the governor's council. And I got through the governor's council, you know, without a hitch. And then was appointed in 1999 and by the governor and I the Boston Housing Court. And then I, uh, Governor uh, Weld uh, elevated me to the Superior Court. I had to go through the same process, but uh, it was without a hitch. And that was in 1994. And uh, then I served as a Superior Court until 2011. So totally 21 years as a judge. So earlier you mentioned how human justice can never be perfect when compared to biblical justice. It doesn't mean that we don't continue the fight toward justice, but we just have to be aware and admit that we and the system are very faulted. So how does your perspective change in the fight for justice as a judge, but also knowing that God is the ultimate judge? Yes, well, it's a good question. And my perspective changed over time as I matured in my faith. Now, I began as a justice warrior, not really... <laughs> my youth, not really thinking at me when I started practice, not really understanding uh, the call of, of a Christian. Um, our calls do more than just feed the hungry and clothe the naked. Uh, because as somebody pointed out, uh, if you feed the hungry and they clothe the naked and give them shelter and they die without Christ, um, you know, clothed and fed um, in a shelter, then they spend eternity in hell. Um, so 
primarily our job is to proclaim Christ uh, so that they can get true justice and better than that, get grace. So I'll, I'll, you know, grace and justice all begin there. Over time, um, I learned that there's a difference between justice and grace. If uh, and God has given us grace through Jesus Christ, uh, not justice. Um, his justice is perfect. And without grace, um, since none of us uh, can meet the, the terms of his justice, which is perfection, um, God in his, in his just wrath and his holiness uh, will, will execute his perfect justice, which is death and hell for forever. Um, instead, he offers grace through Jesus Christ. As I matured as a lawyer and as especially as a judge, uh, it became clear that justice on this earth is always imperfect. Um, the best I can do as a lawyer, as a judge, is in a civil case, get money for my client, but money doesn't really bring about true justice. Uh, for example, there's a class of cases called wrongful death cases. So somebody drives a car negligently and runs over a pedestrian who's in a crosswalk. Um, that's, uh, that's both a crime, so you can be uh, go to jail for that, but it's also a civil wrong, that's called a tort, a civil wrong, whereby the, the family of the pedestrian who was uh, killed can sue me for what's called wrongful death, um, and uh, they can get money. And there's evidence about you know, the, the value of this person is to the family, the, uh, the lost earnings of the person lost because of the untimely death and, and all, all sorts of other factors that go into it and it results in a sum of money. But that money can't bring back that person, can't bring back the love, and it can't really right the wrong. Um, it uh, punishes me to a certain degree um, you know, I'll pay out some money and I might spend a few years in jail, but ultimately I'm still alive. Um, and that pedestrian, his life is now gone, at least from an earthly point of view. Um, so there's no real balancing of the scales. In the Bible, justice is the balancing of the scales. Um, so that if I, uh, if I cause injury to your, to your cow um, so that it died, the uh, balance of scales, I would have to give you a cow or enough money to allow you to buy a cow, not a scales for balance. Um, but um, that's easy. But once you get to more difficult issues of justice or injustice, it's not. Um, you know, money can never buy back a life. Or people, I've had many cases dealing with medical malpractice, and if a doctor makes a mistake, or worse, a doctor is just careless um, and causes harm, permanent harm to somebody so they're now disabled for the rest of their lives. Well, yeah, the jury can award that person a lot of money, but I want to enable them to walk again or, or to uh, use their body fully again uh, or to go back to work. Or it, it doesn't bring back the life before the wrong was done to them. Uh, whereas when Christ when our Lord returns and brings perfect justice, um, it'll be perfect in every sense of, of the word and a true balancing of the scales. Um, and for those of us 
who put our trust in him, he knows that we can't balance the scales because we can't ever be good enough to balance the scales. So he does it for us, who is having died on the cross in our place, taken God's wrath in our place, um, and rose uh, from the dead and uh, defeated death and, and evil and sin. And, and by grace, we, we have life. So as a judge, these concepts became more and more real because you're seeing um, how most humans want justice to one degree or another, we all do. Um, and, and there's an instinct with us, we, we hate injustice. Now, granted, people can get disagree about what justice is and what injustice is, okay, that's a different discussion. But in, but in general, the principle of justice applies universally. We all want something that we define as justice. And we all see that there is injustice in the world, everywhere. Um, and, and every kingdom uh, that's ever existed on planet Earth has been injustice because we're all, we're all sinners. Um, one thing that was a mitigating factor to me as a judge, because I am a Christian, is that I knew, because the Bible says so very clearly, that everything that I would do, uh, would, God would judge me for that uh, as a judge. Um, it's, it tell you, it, it motivates you to be very, very careful. Um, it uh, That's part, you know, the fear of the Lord, that's partly what it looks like. That, yes, God is good, but God is just. And if I treat somebody harshly, abuse the power that I have as a judge, uh, or if I'm lazy as a judge, um, or I, I'm just careless, um, God notes that. Um, I may get away with it, um, you know, here in this life, um, but you know, God notes that. It's there. And uh, as it says in Revelation, we'll all be judged according to our deeds. Um, and so it makes me maybe work harder, maybe be more careful, maybe strive to do my best. Um, and I even then I still fear, am I getting this right? Am I deciding this case um, based upon the law and the facts in front of me? Or am I, am I missing something because I'm not working hard enough or because I have a bias um, or because I'm tired or because um, the, um, the case is too hard and I just can't get through it. And you know, whatever excuses people might have for not doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and so it was a struggle. And, um, you know, you, you want to do it as to the Lord. I can say, though, my, many of my colleagues who, who were not Christian were just as dedicated as I was to justice and as hardworking. Uh, their motive was that they, they wanted to be known as just judges. They wanted to be known as judges who uh, took every case seriously, uh, threw everything, all their energy into doing it, uh, knew the law, knew the facts, apply it, applied it well. Um, not because they might get overruled on appeal, but because their pride was in being uh, good judges. Um, now, pride is never a good thing, and, and I suffer from the same uh, limitation, but at least it motivated them to be good judges. Mm -hmm. um, that was part of the good thing. But for a Christian, 
we had to do without pride and often had to confess our pride to the Lord and do it out of obedience, not out of pride, do it for his glory, not my own. So that was a constant battle, and it is. Not that I know anything what it's like to be a judge, but while you're explaining all the precautions and the decision-making process that goes into being a judge, I don't know, I, I felt this pressure, and I can only imagine that it's hard to give yourself grace. So uh, what did you do in those moments of not getting it perfect all the time? So I prayed every morning before I began my sessions um, and, and I had a little devotion that I would do just to focus on the Lord um, and ultimately ask him for grace for the day. Um, and that was my habit. Literally, literally every, every morning I would get to work early and spend um, about a half hour just in prayer and devotions. There are times when um, I didn't know how to decide a case. I would pray, seek wisdom. Um, now judges are not permitted to uh, talk to anybody else um, to find out, get their opinion about how to decide a case. They, we don't do that. Uh, we're meant to be independent. Um, however, we are free to talk about issues in general. Um, and um, so often we do that. Um, we, we would not talk about a particular case or parties, but we talk about a particular legal issue. And, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, what people think about those issues and, and how they've managed to apply it in, in a variety of circumstances without disclosing to them what my circumstance might be. Um, and so we talk on an abstract level, which often does provide enlightenment about where you need to go, because often by just chewing on the law uh, with other people, you begin to understand it better and understand what's right and what's wrong, how to apply the law, and also understand what really matters in a, in a factual situation without having told anybody about it. Um, and, um, that would be very helpful. And sometimes I would, uh, tell Denise the same thing I'll tell about general legal principle. And, um, cause I want a lay person's response, not a lawyer's response. And she also would not know anything about the case. Um, well, cause I'm, I'm permit not permitted to, to share that stuff. Um, Denise was very wise and a uh, not a way of a lawyer, but just wise as the people and as to what's fair. And uh, so she would have a reaction, not a lawyer's reaction. She would just you know, listen to my recitation of the law um, and uh, a hypothetical factual situation involving it. And she'd have this visceral reaction saying, well, why is that fair? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, sort of put me on the defensive because um, now I haven't tried to explain the legal principle to her. Um, and she's a smart lady. She wasn't going to be fooled by that. And she said, yeah, that might be so, but still not fair. And, uh, you know, you know as, as a lay person, this is, this is the way I would think. 
And this is, you know, she'd think about the consequences of a person. And uh, so I would chew on that and say, okay, I need to be judged. I need to apply the law to the facts, but I need to do it. Remember, these, this is a human being in front of me. This is a mm, person. Yeah. Um, and the, all the people are, are persons. Um, and it's not just a cold letter of the law that matters. What's the spirit here? What's, what is really a just result um, within the context of the, the law? That makes it harder. And that's where, you know, I would just beg the Lord for wisdom. Mm. And there are many times when I, I'm writing the decision and I'm going in a certain direction. Um, and um, I'm still chewing on this. And then all of a sudden there's like a light. Uh, goes off and realize, ah, because uh, I need to write it down. Once I write it down, my, my thoughts congeal. And I begin to see where I'm going and I reread it and, and I begin to see the error of my ways and I just, you know, strike what I had before and, and rewrite the opinion um, and confident that I, I got, I decided correctly this very difficult decision. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't hear voices, you know, <laughs> you know um, it's just a, the power of the Holy Spirit directed me, you know, quietly as the Holy Spirit does work to, to my direction. The other thing is the uh, about injustice, if I can talk about it again. Um, the hardest cases were the ones dealing with violence. Um, you know, um, fathers or uncles raping their daughters or nieces or sons. Um, and uh, adults, adult women being um, assaulted and raped, or murder. I had those cases. Um, and um, those were painful. Every last one of them. I didn't want to hear what these people went through, though I had to. The law is very clear. I have to hear them in detail. Um, I hear from the witnesses who, who witnessed the events in detail. They had to be examined in detail. Um, it's not like watching television. It's not like watching Law and Order and, and those snippets of testimony. I'm listening to a trial that lasts a week. I'm hearing all the details. Um, and I'm looking in the faces. I'm dealing with their tears and their anger. Um, wow, you're really just witnessing the brokenness of people yes it's real people going through real trauma um real injustice for the victims um whether you know from, certainly from their point of view um and whether or not there's a conviction they still feel they were there was uh, injustice um and that i knew that my if the jury convicted you know, these persons, or if I convicted them if there's no jury, um, that would not right the wrong. You know, one guy sent to jail who uh, assaulted his niece repeatedly when she was beginning as age six, um, and um, you know, finally got caught. Um, he just destroyed this little girl's life. Um, and um, as a 11 and 12 year old, um, she's in deep counseling and uh, who knows what's going to happen statistically. I 
there's a good chance that you end up um, living a loose life, uh, becoming a prostitute, uh, going on the drugs, committing suicide. I mean, all sorts of bad things happen uh, when uh, an adult does that to a child um, repeatedly. It just breaks them. Um, and um, unless the Lord intervenes in some fashion, um, you know, the main, uh, you know, dying from all of that. And so, yeah, you know, I sent the guy to jail. He, um, and um, the, uh, you know, I just went home that night, just, just weighed down. Um, because I knew the jail sentence was not going to heal that girl. Um, it was only going to be God's grace to heal her um, and her family. And uh, you see a lot of that, a lot of tragedy like that. And again, that just drove me more to the Lord to pray for these people. Um, that they had to have mercy in all of them. Yeah, I would love to talk about that a little bit, um, about how these two strong feelings can be felt together. I don't think they're necessarily opposing. They can be, but I I do believe they can be felt together, where on one hand, you're wrestling and doubting, uh, feeling all the natural stages of grief and hurt, especially living in such a broken world. And on the other hand, trusting in God, uh, believing him when he says he is near the brokenhearted and will never abandon us. I, yeah, I would love to hear your perspective, uh, not only witnessing this brokenness as a judge, but I know even with your own walk with grief and loss as a widow. So yeah, I, I just want to hear your perspective on that. What I learned during the... Um... Well, the eight years that Denise was sick with cancer, and then the um, the aftermath of her passing away in um, 2010, um, especially the first year, which was the hardest. Um, the reality that there is real comfort that the Lord is with us, walks with us through the valley of shadow of death. Fear no evil for God, for thou art with me. Um, and it wasn't, um, it wasn't that everything was hunky-dory and happy. It's not that at all. And I think sadly, some of, certainly some of the Christianity that I learned, and I think a lot of it more so today, um, misses that. They, they want happy India all the time. Um, and though people are to walk across is to, sort of walk on a cloud or being in a high, wonderful spiritual place and everything is just wonderful. Well, no, um, read the Psalms. I, I, I dove into the Psalms. The, the laments are not descriptive, don't describe being in, in a happy, hunky, wonderful place. It describes uh, being in deep anguish. Um, you know, as a deer thirst for uh, running springs, so thirst my soul for, for for thee, my God, my soul thirsts for God, the living God, where shall I find oh my God? That's not a description of somebody living in, you know, high on a mountaintop. Um, and the song doesn't end with a person on a mountaintop. It ends with, why you cast down all my soul, why you disquieted within me. Trust in God, for I will praise him yet. I will praise him yet. Future. 
um, the health of my countenance, my God, um, that my trust is with the Lord and that he will walk with me during these hard times as hard as they are, he will enable me to walk. Um, and that, yes, it's a little hard to, to move, hard to get out of bed, hard to face the day, um, but I can choose to take the next step and he will continue to help me. Um, and of course, that's the testimony of all the saints. That's what they did. Um, of course, the testimony of Christ, uh, Garden of um, you know, he was sweating blood, not because uh, he's, you know, he was just going through um, the motions. He knew great distress, greater than any of us. Um, and yet he got up and walked uh, to meet the people, the temple guard who would arrest him and take him um, to the cross ultimately. Um, and so I had to learn that. It wasn't, you know, you can read the verses to your green, but you really have to walk through it um, and then see that God is good, that uh, his goodness is not dependent upon my circumstances. Uh, his goodness is that he's always good there and he has a way of caring through these difficult times um, if you trust him. And that um, he will work all things all together for good, but not necessarily today or tomorrow or next year. And secondly, it won't necessarily be the good that you have in mind. Uh, it's uh, good that will glorify his holy name and that will be a blessing to you. Um, and so even though I've been a Christian for a long time, I really had to learn that. Um, and it took years. <laughs> it, it wasn't just one event. It was like one lesson after another. Um, and yet there was grace. You know, the Lord would often... Um, um, you know, a hymn would pop into my mind. Uh, so, so that's what I mean. The Lord would often give me a hymn. You know, I'm, I'm sort of in the middle of distress, and then I'll know where a hymn will just pop in my mind. And I would start humming it. And next thing you know, I'm thinking about the hymn. Typically, it's a hymn of praise of some sort. Um, and I would, uh, it would cause me to, think about God and his glory and his, and his wonder and of my troubles and that God is greater than all that, that he will someday, you know, make all things whole again. Um, but that he is glorious even now. Um, so uh, good hymns, I, I swear by them. What's your favorite hymn? I have so many. Um, so... I mean, like how firm a foundation is one, uh, crown with many crowns. I love that one. Um, amazing Grace, because everybody likes Amazing Grace. Um, my grandma's favorite hymn was "All the Ways My Savior Leads Me." Yes. Yeah. All the ways my Savior leads me. Da da da. Yeah, she'd always sing it around the house. <laughs> yes, I know. I, I like that one. Um, the uh, another one is uh, a closer walk with thee. Um, oh goodness, there's so many, there's many psalms I went to. Um, you know, Psalm 42, 43 that I recited in part, but mm -hmm. 
Psalm 73. You know, there's one portion in, in that psalm um, where the psalm says, Whom do I have in heaven but thee? Upon earth I desire no one besides you. Uh, my flesh and my heart may feel, but the Lord God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And um, you know, then skipping a verse, and he goes, But as for me, nearness of God is my good. I shall make the Lord God my refuge mm. uh, and tell of thy works. And um, in the context of the psalm is um, the despair of the psalmist that the ungodly seem to prosper and live long, strong lives and die silently, you know, quietly in bed, whereas the, the godly uh, seem to suffer at the hands of the ungodly mm. and, uh, and die, uh, you know, young and, and life seems life seems so hard. Uh, all the while, they're following the Lord and being obedient. And then the psalmist um, has this revelation, you know, you know, when he sees God seated upon His throne, and he knows, based upon that, the outcome of the the ungodly, that God will judge them, and that God is with him. And uh, then you know, the psalmist says, "But as for me." Um, I am always with you. Uh, you hold me by my right hand. Is that amazing? Um, you guide me with your your counsel, and afterwards you receive me into glory. So I love that. So God guides me with His counsel so that I can walk the way on the, the straight and narrow way. And he's He's guiding me all the while, and then afterwards He receives me into glory as if. It's an image is as if I've made it to glory on my own. But no, I got there because he guided you with his counsel. He gives you the door uh, of, of glory, as it were. And then, you know, because he's God, you know, he, he's everywhere at once. The door is open, and there's God. You know, you know receive me into glory. And, you know, and I'm realizing, well, I'm here because he got me here. Uh, because he... Uh, you know, he loved me, he chastised me, he strengthened me, he healed me, he forgave me. And so those are the things I would, I would focus on, those, uh, the psalm, Psalm 13 is another one, um, and how often the psalmist would, even in the midst of despair, would turn and cling to God, um, even if at the moment um, the psalmist is still in the midst of suffering. Wait, that's actually so interesting and funny because I'm actually reading the book of Psalms right now. Like, I well, I just started on Wednesday, um, so I'm only on Psalms 4, but literally right before this conversation, I was reading Psalm 4, um, and I, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was titled uh, Answer Me When I Call. So that's cool. <laughs> but at the end of each episode, I ask every guest, Herman, what are three fun facts that your friends don't know about you? Well, see, I struggled over this. Really? Oh, I have a boring life. No, you don't, Herman. Well, I like to play a computer game called Mahjong. It's a Chinese board game Ooh. where you got to match uh, uh, pieces as Chinese characters on How come? Is it to work your brain or something? Yeah, well, it's to relax. That's, you know, when, especially after I started when, you know, when I needed just to decompress after a long day. 
Mm -hmm. um, and so it's become a habit. So it's mindless. I like singing. You know that. Uh, maybe you don't know that. I do like singing. You love jazz too. Remember, we bonded over our love for jazz. Yes. Yeah. So. And you were shocked about how much I knew about jazz. Yes, I was surprised. Very surprised. No, but I've been singing choirs so on pretty much all my life. I you know I haven't the last several years, but you know, singing choirs since I was a little kid. Um, and um, in our household, singing songs was just normal. So can't tell you how many songs from the 50s and 60s and 70s I memorized. And third, I love reading. I read everything. Yes, you do. Ooh, I have to ask this. What is your all-time favorite book? Well, well, see, I can't answer that question. Yeah, all the people I've asked that are big readers have said that it felt like that I was asking them who their favorite child was. Yeah, you know, also I go through periods where I'm reading certain genres. And okay, how about this? Which book challenged your thinking the most? Well, there's, there's no one book that's done that. So I've read books by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Spurgeon, some of the sermons, J.I. Packer, who just died recently, of course, C.S. Lewis, Many of his books have been very significant to me. Some books by R.C. Sproul, especially his books on holiness and on the sovereignty of God. I've been reading several books just recently about uh, uh, issues of, uh, of race and racism and culture, uh, rereading some others, um, and uh, just reading one that really focused on Christ and the call of Christians. Um, to not fall into just political points of view. Um, well, I am really encouraged by your processing and how God has been working in your life and in, in walking with you in every season. I'm really thankful that God allowed our lives to uh, cross paths, even though it was not the normal way of meeting people nowadays. But I truly believe my life is far richer because of your friendship, especially all the conversations we had when I was younger and still to this day, too. So thanks for looking up and <laughs> talking to 14-year-old Grace and for all the other conversations that we've been able to have. As I have said to any number of people, the Lord has a good sense of humor. She decided my life was way too dull. <laughs> I needed some excitement and I needed a new friend. Mm. And so he gave me you and you are a friend. And so glad the Lord brought us together. And whether he did, I, I know he chuckled. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he just... He just chuckled to himself. <laughs> Wait till Herman goes to the restaurant tonight. Hmm. <laughs> Surprise for him. <laughs> yeah. And I'm glad. Yeah, I'm very thankful for you. And so thanks for this conversation. understand why I cherish Herman and this friendship so much. I am thankful for his honesty about the realities of living in a broken world filled with grief and loss and an imperfect justice system. I'm even challenged to trust and believe that God is good even if I don't feel it sometimes. That doesn't mean we can't wrestle and doubt and question things. 
if anything, the thing I got out of this conversation is that God can handle us, that God is not overwhelmed with us, even if we're overwhelmed by everything around us. If you got anything out of this conversation, I hope it's that God is with you in every season of our lives. So thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. I know it was pretty long, but I believe it's an important conversation to have. I would love to know which part of Herman's story you connected with the most, or just your thoughts on this episode. Let me know at We're No Longer Strangers on Instagram. The music in the background is created by my talented friend Chintek. Go show him some love on Instagram. I'll leave his handle in the show notes below. Alright friends, go do something fun with a friend or a stranger that turned into a friend, and I'll see you next week with my friend Cassie. Bye friends! Mm-hmm.